Well, welcome to the next uh, episode in uh, Breakfast with Jesus, where I'm sharing some of the uh, meditations that I've had with Anne as we've read through Jeremiah. Uh, in the last talk, which I, I talked about Jeremiah and the, the angry God, and I explained how the early chapters of Jeremiah uh, went behind uh, the, the wrath of God and revealed an unexpected uh, center of gravity uh, behind the wrath of God, which was love and love made vulnerable. And that uh, love was the primary cause, the primary character of God. And the judgments were um, outworkings of love. And as you know, I, I took a, a literary approach to the text, uh, which um, I think is unusual, but it's illuminating. I, I concentrated on imagery and, and voice. Um, in particular, the, the way these contribute to a dramatic movement and a dramatic momentum and the way that that drama reveals character. Um, I want to take this further and, and explain how this Jeremiah vision develops and I think supersedes the angry God quote uh, vision of the historical books, Samuel and Kings in particular. And in fact, that this Jeremiah vision is presented as a kind of climax for the Old Testament representation and vision of God, and even further, an incarnation or pre-incarnation of the New Testament vision of God, which was finalized in Jesus Christ. Now, last time I mentioned in passing the work of uh, Eric Albach uh, on language and literature, and uh, I... I I sort of promised I might go into it in more detail. I'm going to give you a snippet of it today. Um, it's, it's a bit, I think it's wonderful. I think it's, it's incredibly interesting and unique, uh, but you might need to concentrate. Um, so I'm going to expand on this a little bit for you. First of all, Eric Auerbach, um, who was he? Uh, he was a great um, Jewish uh, German um, literary cr critic of the first half of the 20th century. And um, his, uh, e his epic book was called Mimesis, uh, and the subtitle is The Art of Representation of Reality in Western Literature. And it's a 2,000-year journey uh, and diagnosis through Western literature. It's quite an extraordinary book, uh, actually quite readable, and um, it's one of the few works of literary criticism that has become as famous, really, as the novels it discusses. Um, you can see straight away from that title, this is not just about literature, it's about reality. And you can see some resonance with Esther Meek's work on, on reality, and you can see that Auerbach's work is just as philosophical as it is literary, straight away from the title. Uh, I would say in passing that Auerbach, he, he wasn't, that I know, a Christian, I don't think. He was a religious man. He kept his Jewish heritage, but it's absolutely illuminating in teaching Christians how to read the Bible. Um, I, I, 
I won't say too much more about that broader claim. Perhaps uh, at some other time I might go into, into it in more detail. But um, I, in, in the second chapter of his book, for instance, he goes into uh, Peter and his betrayal of, of Jesus. And, and Albach completely foreshadows what uh, Edwin Judge said about the nature of reality in the way that the New Testament unthinkingly in the Greek culture lifts up the common man. So, um, but let's go back to the beginning of Auerbach's book. And he opens in a very famous first chapter with a comparison between Greek literature and the Old Testament, in particular Genesis. And the Greek literature he focuses on is Homer. And he sees uh, these two epic works, Homer's work and the Old Testament, as he admires them both, but he sees them as offering contrasting views of reality that is captured in their style. So it's whilst his comments are quite stylistic, it's he believes that that style represents a view of reality um, and that that view of reality is what he's interested in discussing. Now, as far as I know, um, I don't know anyone else who's done what he's done. You know, in Gospel Conversations, we really like looking at the Bible in its uh, context and John Walton and Ian Proven helped us to do that with the Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern cosmology. And Edwin Judge did with the New Testament and its contrast with the Greco-Roman world. But I don't know anyone who's contrasted the Old Testament with the Greco-Roman world, which of which it was relatively contemporaneous. In other words, Homer was, I don't know if anyone knows exactly when Homer wrote, but you know we're looking clearly at a time somewhat similar to when Jeremiah wrote. Um, and uh, he see, uh, Auerbach sees these two contrasting styles as the headwaters of Western literature, which is a tremendous vision. Now, let me explain how he characterizes the, uh, the Greek style. And he does this with a discussion of the Odyssey, and in particular, a famous episode in chapter 19, uh, when Odysseus returns from his journeys and is um, returning in disguise, and is uh, his wife Penelope, of course, thinks he's dead, and he comes in disguise and has a conversation with her. It's 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 uh, it's tense, it's romantic, uh, but um, Odysseus then, uh, at Penelope's suggestion, has a bath, and and the old maidservant who knew Odysseus from 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 old uh, baths him, and Odysseus immediately worries that she's going to recognize him because he has a scar on his leg and when she feels his leg and the scar she'll recognize it's him so that's chapter 19 of Odysseus I won't go into it in the detail but our and Auerbach does but but here's what he says about the Greek Homeric style um, the key thing is he calls it a foregrounded style which I say it's a mile wide and, but only an inch deep. In other words, it's very ornate, um, beautiful language, 
adjectival clause piled on adjectival clause, but not deep. And um, uh, this is it, the, the, the narrative structure is linear and it, linear in a way that seems to excavate mystery. It's just everything is foregrounded, it's there. Lots of information and elegant prose. Uh, the actual technical name for the style he's talking about is peritactic, which is where you pile a, you know, a series of verbs or clauses together, but without connecting words. And you're thinking, yes, but <laughs> where's this going? Um, it's, a, it's a series of unconnected phenomena that don't seem to add up to anything particularly meaningful. You could say it's, it's one-dimensional. Albach sums it up, and by the way, he's not criticizing Homer, but he's positioning Homer as more primitive in his view of humanity. So he sums it up with this phenomenal sentence. The Homeric poems, though their intellectual, linguistic, and syntactical culture appears to be so much more highly developed, are yet comparatively simple in their picture of human beings. This is very important, particularly when you think of the heritage of the Old Testament with the deep view of humanity made in the image of God, a simple picture of human beings. Importantly, this simplistic view of reality and people includes the gods. They're, 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 they're just as one-dimensional. Now, Arbach then contrasts this with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament he calls a backgrounded style as opposed to a foregrounded style, by which I, I say it's like it's an inch wide, but it goes very deep. And um, famously, he does this in the discussion of Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. Now, we, we're very familiar with this story. We know for a start that the um, story is short. It's succinct compared to the prolixity of um, Homer. And it's, it's, it's run by verbs, not by adjectives. Um, the verbs seem unornate, but uh, Auerbach points out that they're the tips of icebergs. That's my phrase, not his. But it's as if behind the actions, there is mystery and meaning that we're groping at. Um, and, and these tips of icebergs are both with people and with God, both with Abraham and with Isaac, but also with God. So that means that since God is treated in this way, in fact, having the bulk of the mystery behind him, he is presented as personal and, and the mystery behind him is shaping the whole, the whole story. Uh, this is how Albach sums it up. He says, God is always backgrounded and he is so represented in the Bible. I'm thinking as I read that, of course, of the famous Exodus passage where Moses wants to see God and God says, you can only see my back parts. He, he is always backgrounded and he is so represented in the Bible for he's not comprehensible in his presence as is Zeus. Zeus is simple, God is not. It is always only something of him that appears. He always extends into depths. Isn't that beautiful? It is always only something of God that appears. He always extends into depths. Keep that phrase in mind as we develop this. Now, the Jewish picture of reality that emerges out of this is of a vast drama and a drama that's circumscribed with mystery, but 
it is toward a goal of meaning. The mystery is not chaotic because it's, it's enclosed and backgrounded in the character of God. And, and the centerpiece of the drama always is this in, inquiring conversation between God and people, where people, and I'm going to say this is Jeremiah as much as it's Josiah, as much as it's David, are basically doing what Abraham's doing. What's going on, God? Not as in God is arbitrary and unknown, but there's something there that I'm reaching out and I want to get more of it. This is how Auerbach sums it up, beautiful sentence, as a silent progress through the indeterminate and the contingent, a holding of the breath between what has passed and what lies ahead and which yet is measured. So he sees the drama not as chaotic wanderings, it's filled with tension, the tension between a past which seems to have promised something and a future which seems to lie ahead, to be in God's hands, but somewhat unknown. We're in a story with a meaning, but the meaning is something that we are you know, searching after. So the conversation uh, uh, for all the mystery is meaningful. And this is what Albach uh, says about that. The decisive points of the, of the narrative alone are emphasized. In other words, the writer of the Genesis account, which is where he makes these points, doesn't waste words, doesn't just go off into adjectival phrases about what the mountain looked like and what the sunrise looked like, which is what Homer did. All you get are the decisive points. The whole is permeated with the most unrelieved suspense and directed toward a single goal and yet remains mysterious and fraught with background. Fraught with background. So that's his uh, picture. It's actually just a summary. Albach is says a lot more than that that uh, I find absolutely um, insightful and intriguing. But I think in introducing it to you here, let's just keep with the simple point, foregrounded versus backgrounded. And I think that's a very profound distinction. So what does it say for Jeremiah? And in particular, Jeremiah's position regarding the book of Kings and Samuel. I think uh, Albach shines a, a really new light here and, and here's how I see it. Throughout Kings and Samuel, God is present but backgrounded in Albach's terms. Um, he's acting, the acts are, are not gratuitous, they're not random, but they are fraught with background. They are mysterious, they are the tips of icebergs. So. 2 Kings 23 is a really good example. Um, I won't read it all out, but this is the verdict at the end of Josiah's reign. Now, Josiah has been, uh, this summary is full of contradiction. Josiah is a reforming king. He's even pronounced as better than David. Um, But he, God is going to sweep aside his reforms and keep judging. They're not good enough. Um, you know, the text says something like, though Josiah put away the mediums, etc., still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, which uh, as Manasseh had provoked him. That's 1 Kings 23, verse 26, 27. You can read it yourself. So at face value, this is the angry God. My point is 
in Auerbach's terms, we know there's something else going on with God, something unexplained. This is understandable at one level, and yet it seems to be the contradictions seem to hint at greater depths that we yet don't know. Now, we know, we know that Jeremiah participated um, in these actions. He was uh, present, uh, possibly during Josiah's reign. I can't remember quite that, but certainly he lived through the latter days. He lived through the fall of Jerusalem. He was a player. Um, as I read the book of Jeremiah, um, it's clear to me he was some kind of aristocrat. He, he, he had access to the kings. Um, uh, he was... Um, he was, yeah, he was not a rustic prophet. Um, and he offered prophecies and voices of prophecies. But I think he also was confused. He didn't have, you know, a playbook of easy answers. He was torn, much like Abraham was when God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. He, he was torn between memories of promise and, and contradictory feelings of anger and confusion. And that's why I think Lamentations, by the way, is, is in the Bible. So important because it's, a, it's, a, it's his psychological journey, his feelings about what's going on. Um, but in these early uh, chapters of Jeremiah that I discussed last time, where we get the unveiling of the love of God, I think we go deeper into the background of the mind of God. Uh, we go deeper into the layers of complexity, into the mystery that is always seeming to shape God's plans. And we go to the heart of his intentionality, which is revealed as love. And I you know, said a lot about that last time. I just tell you, um, it is so sad the way that so much of Protestantism and evangelicalism has latched onto the wrath of God and the justice of God as the defining portrait of God, um, whereas it's just there, you know, as the first layer. Um, I I think often of Paul's great prayer in Ephesians that we would know the height and breadth and depth of the mystery of God, which passes uh, knowledge. So. Um, Jeremiah's, uh, yeah, and we saw, just to remind you, the, the love is not just wishy-washy, it's actually, it's psychology and its motives and therefore its tactics are very subtle because it is a love that cannot get what it wants by coercion. It cannot. It cannot get what it wants by orders or by obliterating power. It just can't because it wants reciprocity. It wants love back. And life teaches us you can't get that by commanding it. You can't command love. Anyway, so Jeremiah's early chapters are drawing back the curtain, getting into the background, using Auerbach's terms, that in Kings and Samuel we just got glimpses of. And it's as if this uh, poetic language isn't just a flourish. It isn't just a stylistic flourish. It is taking us deep into the mind of God and the motives of God and the mystery of God. And it is a mystery characterized by love that will only be satisfied with an intelligent, loving response. And this, this is what this love is what frames all reality. Um, so, uh, in closing, uh, what does this say for our lives today? 
uh, and I'll return to Auerbach here because he just says some beautiful things about this. Uh, what is this parting of the curtain into the heart of God? How does it affect our lives? Um, I think it's 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 um, uh, it's pretty obvious, but let, let's just lay out a few things. And, and Auerbach says two very rich things here. Firstly, he says that uh, given that God is forever deep, we can never exhaust our knowing of him. Uh, I see this as far from being limiting, it's actually exciting. What Auerbach says is since so much in the story, Old Testament story, is dark and incomplete, and since the reader knows that God is a hidden God, his effort to interpret it constantly find something new to feed upon. This is really important. And Albach is sharing this with Gregory of Nyssa and others. The mystery of God is not a cause for pessimism and fatalism. Oh, I can't understand God. Who can ever know? You know, and you get a lot of this in Christianity. Oh, God's got his mysterious ways. You know, he's sending people to hell. He knows we don't. Well, no, that's, that's a sense of um, pessimism that God's just un. A mystery, as in um, uh, not just incomprehensible, but in a way that would defy any trajectories of logic and hope that I might have. Uh, you're really back to a pagan god. No. On the contrary, Auerbach says that this mystery of God is exciting because it will be new every morning. That was his first point. The second point is that this, as we go deeper into the background of God, this vision should overtake us and our minds. And he says this about uh, uh, in, in a contrasting point with Homer. He says, uh, Homer is just seeking to make us forget our own reality for a few hours. You know, a pretty modest ambition. But that's not the ambition of the writers of the Old Testament. They seek to, and I love this phrase, overcome our reality. We are to fit our own life into its world and feel ourselves to be elements in its structure of universal history. We have to paint ourselves into the narrative, which means painting ourselves into the narrative of love and seeing ourselves as beloved and seeing the goal of God is to awake in every one of us as an individual that um, recognition and response of the love of God in all things. So um, it's a little bit of an excursion today into something uh, rather different, but it's really precious. As I say, there's a lot more that you could say about Auerbach. Uh, perhaps we might do that some other time in the future. God bless you.